Welcome to the Football Pink podcast, hosted by Roddy Cairns. The Football Pink is a website, magazine and documentary podcast series bringing you long-form stories and nostalgia from across the world of football. July 1966 was a day that will forever be scorched into the consciousness of English football fans. A day that made household names of Bobby Moore, Bobby Charlton and Jeff Hurst. However, the youngest member of that World Cup winning team, Alan Ball, is perhaps the most intriguing character of them all. In a companion piece to issue 23 of the Football Pink magazine, this podcast will look at a career in football that was equal parts successful and meandering and reflect on the seven ages of Alan Ball. Here's a 21-year-old, supposed to be overawed. He's showboating on the biggest stage. You need to have complete faith in your own ability to pull off a sparkly pair of white football boots when there's 11 other people trying to get you. Alan Ball was very much a man for his time, and that time was never more glorious than when he graced the green grass of his beloved Goodison Park. All the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first, the kid, announcing himself to the footballing world as a player of significance. In life, it often isn't what you know, as opposed to who you know. I can believe I'm saying this, but this actually is relevant to Alan Ball. He was obviously an incredibly talented footballer. However, his break into football was very much because of his father. Ball had been on trials to to very little success in his younger days, but eventually his father, Alan Ball Sr., he was a, a former professional player himself, and he knew Ron Seward who was the manager of Blackpool at the time. Ball's dad convinced Stuart to give Ball trial, of which Alan Ball excelled, and he was offered an apprenticeship in September 1961, turning professional the following year. He may have been offered a crutch by his father, however, it wasn't long before Ball was running right in the Blackpool midfield. He was just a revelation. His first season was quiet. He only only made five appearances or so in 1962-63. But over the next couple of years, he went on to amass over 100 appearances for, for Blackpool. And despite his young age, it was it was no surprise that Alf Ramsey picked him to be part of the squad that went to, to the World Cup. He was industrious, he was talented going forward in attack. But his, his energy, his sheer relentlessness was what made him such a valuable piece and was why at such a young age he was deemed this important player for England. Ramsey gave Ball his England debut against Yugoslavia in May 1965, and at the time he was just shy of his 20th birthday. By today's standards, it's, it's not particularly groundbreaking for a teenager to get selected for their national team, but in the 1960s there was a huge emphasis on experience, 
so to give a teenager such a big opportunity was a real statement of intent. He went on to make four England appearances in 65, and in his third game against Sweden, he got his first goal. This was crucially important as, again, being so young, there were still questions despite his obvious talent. To add that goal-scoring element really just cemented the fact that he was an important player for the Three Lions. One of the biggest question marks over his head wasn't just his inexperience in age, but his, his discipline. It's natural that being a ball-winning midfielder, you're going to make tackles that are going to see you under caution from the referee. However, it wasn't this that was the problem. In an under-23s tournament, he once picked up a football and threw it at a referee in rage. These were the kind of things that would that would mar his, his reputation at the time and would put him in trouble with uh, the authorities. Despite the question marks, despite the, the aggression, it was a no-brainer for Alan Ball to be put in that, that England squad. And on the opening game against Uruguay, when Alf Ramsey put him into the starting eleven, I don't think there was a, a fan in England who, who would disagree with that decision. The World Cup final of 1966 is Alan Ball's match. Jeff Hurst rightly gets the credit for his hat-trick, but he and many of the players all say Alan Ball was their man of the match. He just ran and ran and ran. There's a clip on YouTube which focuses solely on Alan Ball and his touches throughout the game. It's fascinating. He's only seen on the right wing occasionally. Mainly he's through the middle, he's often on the left wing, but he's basically everywhere. And you soon get an idea of how he pressed and chased everything. Two things stood out for me. One was his anticipation of where the play was going, how he'd often be in the right place at the right time. Second was how he was always on the move. He'd get the ball, lay it off to a teammate, and then always be on the move to provide a passing option. Towards the end of the game, the commentator Kenneth Wollstenholme starts laughing at Ball's energy. At one point he says, And here comes Mr Perpetual Motion, as Ball once again is ready for a pass and is off running again. He came into the World Cup barely 10 weeks after his 21st birthday. By that time he'd only earned 10 caps. England came through the group games rarely troubled. Ball was in for the opening goalless draw against Uruguay, but set out the wins over Mexico and France. Alf Ramsey changed things for the knockout stages. Ball was back in for the game against Argentina and Ramsey kept the same team through to the final, beating Portugal and then taking on West Germany. 30th of July 1966 was when Ball and the others became household names. He played a part in two of the goals. He took the corner which led to the second goal when Martin Peters pounced on a loose ball and England thought they'd won it. Then in extra time he provided the first time cross for Jeff Hurst with the third goal when it went in off the underside of the bar. But my favourite Alan Ball moment comes late in the second period of extra time. He starts a move on the right in his own half, sweeps the ball out to the left to Roger Hunt, but Hunt's then tackled and the first player to take the play on is Alan Ball. He's cutting inside from the left wing towards the German area with the defence retreating and then all of a sudden he just steps on the ball with his right heel and back heels it back out to the left wing where Ray Wilson has come up from left back. It's the sort of skill you quite often see players do these days, but not back in 1966. Here's a 21-year-old, supposed to be overawed. He's showboating on the biggest stage. England won 4-2, world champions, and Ball received plaudits from throughout the game for his performance. The significance of Ball's age, I think, can be measured in the fact that 1966 was only eight years after the Munich air crash, and back then England thought they had a chance of winning the World Cup. But those young lads died in Munich 
including Duncan Edwards, who in 66 would have been 29, no doubt would have played an important part in that team. This was particularly poignant with Bobby Charlton being in the team, himself a Munich survivor. In fact, it was Bobby that said to his brother at the end of the game, our lives will never be the same again. And that was true of all of them, particularly Alan Ball, who went on to further glory in his career. And then the champion, one third of a trio that would inspire religious devotion across Merseyside. Weeks after winning the ultimate prize in football with England in July 1966, Alan Ball had followed his father, Alan Senior's advice on which club he should leave Blackpool for. That came when he joined Everton for a record British transfer fee of £110,000. It would be a match made in heaven, eventually. Now, three years later, as the summer of 69 wore on, thoughts turned to a new domestic season. The target for all of England's top clubs was simple. Try to overthrow Don Revy's champions, Leeds United. At Everton, three years after his arrival from Blackpool, Alan Ball had become an integral member of a strong team. In fact, along with fellow central midfielders Howard Kendall and Colin Harvey, he formed a trio of players who were regarded by many Toffees fans as the strongest midfield unit in the club's entire history, and amongst the best midfield trio in Europe. Together they were dubbed the Holy Trinity. Manager Harry Catterick knew he had a very competitive team as the new season approached. Besides his midfield stars, he still had influential captain Brian Labone, experienced goalkeeper Gordon West and veteran left-winger Johnny Morrissey to call upon. And he'd also promoted exciting young talent from within the club, including striker Joe Royal. The fixture list certainly wasn't kind to Everton. Their first two league games were away to Arsenal and then away to Manchester United. However, a 1-0 win at Highbury and a 2-0 win at Old Trafford gave early notice that the Toffees were not going to be a team to take lightly. In fact, the only point Everton dropped before a narrow 2-1 defeat at Brian Clough's Derby County on the 6th of September was in a very creditable 1-1 draw at FA Cup holders Manchester City. This opening period included a pivotal 3-2 win over Champions League United in front of over 53,000 fans at Goodison Park. Ball and Harvey had outbattled and outwitted Bremner and Giles and helped to provide bullets for the lethal Royal and Jimmy Husband. Alan Ball's great form continued unabated. He scored goals and further wins over West Ham and Ipswich Town as Catterick's men remained top of the league table, having won nine of their opening 11 matches. Alan Ball and his teammates went for two months unbeaten in Division 1 before losing 2-0 at West Brom on the 8th of November. Ball was the mini-fulcrum in which the team's possession-based passing game centred. He regularly dictated the play in games alongside the skillful Harvey and energetic Kendall. Everton built up an extraordinary lead of 8 points over 2nd placed Leeds following a deserved 1-0 victory over Nottingham Forest at Halloween. Many pundits were no longer talking about if Everton would become champions, rather when it would be rubber stamped, and if Catrick could steer his side to the holy grail of a league and cup double. The first bad defeat of the season came in the Merseyside derby against Liverpool on the 6th of December, but despite that, three single goal victories followed over West Ham, Derby and Manchester City, and that ensured it was a happy Christmas indeed for Evertonians. Then came the mid-season wobble. It started with a narrow 2-1 loss at Elland Road on the 27th of December. Three days into the new decade, Everton's hopes of the double were dashed at the first hurdle as they lost 2-1 at Sheffield United, despite Alan Ball scoring a penalty from the penalty spot to give the Toffees an early lead. 
That wasn't built upon and his dreams of a first cup winner's medal ended in disappointment. Indeed, he would never get his hands on such a medal. A late, late Mick Channon goal gave Southampton a 2-1 win at the Dell on the 17th of January and all of a sudden Catterick's men were looking up the table at Leeds United. Ball returned from injury for the home game with Coventry City on the 21st of February but he couldn't prevent another point going awry in a disappointing 0-0 stalemate. However, by now it was very much a two-horse race with Leeds for the league title. Chelsea were well behind in third place. A victory at Burnley was essential on the 7th of March. Alan Ball led the side and led the way as well, scoring after just 14 minutes. Even though the Clarets equalised almost immediately, Ball helped the side dig in and clinch a 2-1 win. The news that Leeds had dropped a point in their game at Liverpool was nonetheless tempered by a serious injury sustained by captain Brian Labone, and that injury prevented Labone playing for any further part in the season, and Alan Ball became Everton captain. Ball's first game as stand-in captain was at White Hart Lane on the 11th of March when he led the team to a very deserved 1-0 win. Bizarrely, his second game was at Goodison Park the following Saturday against Spurs again, and that turned into an absolute ding-dong battle which Everton eventually won 3-2 through a late Joe Royal winner. That was played out in front of over 51,000 ecstatic fans. Everton then made the trip across Stanley Park and avenged the earlier defeat in the season by Liverpool by winning quite comprehensively 2-0. Having moved points clear at the top of the table and with five games left to play, Everton welcomed Chelsea to Goodison Park on the 28th of March. It took them 14 seconds to score. It was a goal from Howard Kendall. Three minutes later, Alan Ball made it 2-0 and by the time that Alan Whittle had made it 5-0 to Everton on 57 minutes, Chelsea probably wished that they had missed their bus. Despite the visitors pulling back a couple of late goals, news that came through from Leeds that they had lost 3-1 to Southampton made it a very jubilant evening indeed for the Evertonians. Surely they couldn't let this go now. Two days later, Ball led Everton to a 1-0 win at Stoke City and coupled with a 4-1 defeat for Leeds at Brian Clough's Derby County, it left Everton just needing to see off West Bromwich Albion at Goodison Park on the 1st of April to become champions of England. Alan Ball led a side out in their final home game of the season and was instrumental in, in helping the hosts to get control of proceedings from the first whistle, a dervish of flame-haired energy. Alan Whittle scored the opener on 20 minutes and by the time Colin Harvey scored one of the goals of the season to win the game 2-0, the Evertonians were in celebratory mood. When the referee blew for full-time, Everton were champions of England with two games to spare. Alan Ball had skippered the side to his first major club honour in football, but little did he know then that with the exception of the 1970 Charity Shield victory the following August, he would never win another medal as a player. And then the icon, breaking new ground in the movement that aligns sport with fashion. Wearing white football boots is a pretty bold move, even in today's game. You need to have complete faith in your own ability to pull off a sparkly pair of white football boots when there's 11 other people trying to get you. In today's game, football players see their footwear as a chance to express themselves and their personalities on the biggest stage of all. Some boots have become as iconic as the players wearing them, and footwear is now an integral part of the game we love. But there was a time before this, pre-mercurial, pre-predator, even pre-copper mundial, there are only a few boots available, even for pros. The choices were pretty limited. 
Back in the 60s, it's fair to say the game was very different. Football was tougher. Pitches were muddier, balls were heavier, centre-halves were less forgiving, and boots were for kicking, running and tackling. And boots were black. Wanted something different? Tough. But in the late 60s, German footwear brand Hummel were looking to break that mould. But who was good enough to put on a pair of white football boots? Alan Ball was making a name for himself. The young midfielder had shown at the World Cup what he could do. Young, quick and fearless, Ball just didn't stop. Up and down the right all game, drifting in off his wing, popping into the centre, going on to the left, he was pretty much everywhere. It was a game that epitomised his footballing qualities, and it didn't go unnoticed. He became the perfect candidate for Hummel's new boots. He acted as a marquee signer for Hummel. He was a player that young fans would look, look up to and think, I want to play like that. But the boots stood out to say the least. It wasn't hard to spot him on a brown pitch with 21 other players donning normal black footwear. Lucky for the ball, he was good enough to pull the look off, and his football justified that. But it was a pretty good look, even by today's standards. It seemed to make him look even classier, the dainty touches, the long-range screamers, magnified by these sparkly boots. It was going too well. Unfortunately, Alan himself wasn't the biggest fan, and the monetary incentives kept him wearing them, rather than the look. He actually described the boots as cardboards, and it wasn't long till he was back in a pair of Adidas's painted white by an apprentice. Once Hamill realised that, it's pretty much the end. But he left behind him a legacy. Since then, football boot designers got bigger and bigger, along with the choices of colours. Boots these days come in every colour under the sun. Although Alan may not have realised it at the time, he started a new era for football boots. You still don't see many players wearing white football boots, mind. You'd have to be some player. And then the star, a player in his prime at a blue-chip club. Arsenal Football Club dominated football in the 1930s. They won the league title five times and the FA Cup twice. And Highbury Stadium was the platform for that success. As the success kept rolling in on the pitch, so did the supporters rolling into the stands. And in 1935, Arsenal became the first club to earn over £100,000 in gate receipts. Arsenal broke the British transfer record four times. In 1928 for David Jack, 1938 for Bryn Jones, and obviously more, more recently in 1995 for Dennis Bergkamp. But in 1971, Alan Ball was that man. In the 20s and 30s, Arsenal were not afraid to flaunt the cash they had from their gate receipts and their status. Yet, World War II halted that progression. Highbury was partially destroyed in the Blitz and the club's financial resources were bled. So that began Arsenal's long sleep. It's said that the double winning side of 1971 was led by Bertie Mee, the manager, as an infantry type unit. And the side was captained by Frank McClintock, who acted as a second manager on the field, regimenting his troops, ensuring their work rate was exemplary. Players like Charlie George, for example, who put in vital performances on the way to Arsenal double, were the type of players who thrived when the going got tough. He was the one who was able to dig out those crucial wins in moments that required inspiration, as the circumstance desperately lacked it. For example, a tough FA Cup tie versus Manchester City saw one of these particular moments, where George scored a vital brace to win the game on a pitch lashed with rain. The ball was getting caught up in such thick mud it was barely playable, yet Charlie admitted, 
I love playing in the mud and the rain. So that was the sort of team of hard-working grafters that Arsenal were when they won the double. And they weren't showered with as much praise as you would expect. They were described as dull, sterile, unimaginative. Now, that's not to say Arsenal didn't deserve their double, not at all, but they got there by hard work and gritty determination. And for a team like that to incorporate a star player with flair like Alan Ball, it wasn't the match made in heaven it could have been seen as from the outside. Now, this leads me on to what I think was a huge reason for why Alan didn't find the superstardom at Arsenal. It was a clash of styles. Now, Ball came from Everton and the Holy Trinity, an Everton school of science approach, and that was lauded for being very technical and everything ran through Alan Ball in that midfield. Yeah, Arsenal, it was a long ball game where the ball was mostly bypassed the midfield where Alan was and it went to the wide players or the forwards like John Radford or Ray Kennedy. Alan spoke to the captain at the time about his dislike for this style of football. But of course, it is difficult for 10 men to change their approach that they've known for years to accommodate the 11th. So Ball had to adapt to them. And the relationship became fruitful and it was better over time as Alan adapted. But it was not near as successful as I think neither Alan or Arsenal would have wanted. Instead of Ball being the star player who won the team trophies, he was the star player who rescued the club from relegation. I think there is also something to say that Ball simply just loved Everton when he left. I mean, his words are written on the walls of Goodison Park in the change rooms, and it says, once Everton has touched you, nothing will be the same. And he left Goodison Park in tears, and the club seemed to be truly under the man's skin. So it is often seen that a player, no matter how good, can struggle elsewhere when he has had such an affinity with the club he has left behind. And I think Ball's time at Arsenal was just pockmarked by near successes. In his first season, he got to the FA Cup final. Um, he nearly scored in the opening few minutes, but they ended up losing 1-0 to Leeds. In his second season, he scored in a 2-0 victory against Liverpool, but by the end of the season, they finished runners-up to that Liverpool side. But slowly and surely, the side he started with, the double-winning side, started to fade away. And Alan picked up some injuries, which meant he missed opening parts of the season. And when he returned, he returned as the captain of the team. And he managed to drag the team to 17th place, saving them from relegation. And he did that twice. But that's not what a player like Alan Ball wants to be doing. It was a great success at the time for him and for Arsenal. But... It's far from the level we would have wanted from Alan Ball and from Arsenal themselves. So what I've said seems very negative, but Alan is still very highly regarded by Arsenal fans. He is amongst their top 50 greatest players of all time, and that is because of how talented he was. And despite not winning a trophy, it was how influential he was to save them from relegation, as well as inspiring Arsenal players of future generations like David O'Leary who went on to win two league titles with the club and Liam Brady who was an FA Cup winner with the team. They've both come out and said Alan inspired them and was a great influence in their careers. So Ball as one of England's greatest footballers had a big effect on one of England's greatest clubs. 
and then the pioneer, ploughing his own furrow in the fledgling soccer leagues of the new world. When Alan Ball moved to the Philadelphia Fury in 1978, the North American Soccer League had been in existence for 10 years. Uh, while 10 years is a long time, in terms of planting the foundations for a sustainable league in North America, it was still a case of sort of trial and error. While high viewing figures in North America during the 1966 World Cup, which Ball starred in, uh, had shown that there was a market for football there, the NASL was, uh, was still having trouble bedding themselves in. It would almost be a seasonally occurrence that the franchises that made up the league uh, would shift by either being moved elsewhere and renamed or being dissolved and then replaced with another side. Since its inception, the NASL have picked up the, the, the epithet of importing star names to give a boost to attendances. Players like Pelé, Carlos Alberto, George Best, Eusebio, Johan Cruyff, they all spent time with NASL franchises. In 78, Ball had just achieved promotion with Southampton from the second division. Uh, and he was sort of sold this idea of going to America to help boost the game's profile, like those star names before him had done, and, and he truly believed in it. So in the off-season in Europe, he moved to the Philadelphia Fury on loan. This wasn't for the style of football that he had left behind, though. This was soccer, it wasn't football. The NASL was built on crowd entertainment. There was pre-match and half-time shows, and, and the players were celebrities, like they weren't across the Atlantic Ocean at the time. So sort of. it, it was rock and roll America. However, the, the odds were somewhat stacked against Ball when he moved to the Fury. He was 33 when he moved stateside for that summer, but the, the club that he went to was still finding their feet. The 1978 season was due to be their, their first ever season, and the city of Philadelphia had been without a franchise since the Philadelphia Atoms had folded in 1976, and the Fury was, was somewhat of a second attempt in that city. Things would then take another turn for the worse uh, as, as the then coach of the club, Richard Dinnis, was sacked just a month after Ball had arrived. And as, as he was one of the more experienced pros at the club, Alan was named the side's player coach for the remainder of the season. Following a 30-game term over the summer of 78, the Fury had won 12 games and lost 18, but they still qualified for the NASL's playoffs by the skin of their teeth. The playoffs were sort of a, a series of knockout games which led to, to what was called the Soccer Bowl, which was where that season's champion would be crowned. However, the Fury's season came to a halt in, in just the, the first knockout game uh, as they were eliminated by another newly formed franchise, the Detroit Express, in a 1-0 in a defeat. The Philadelphia Fury's first season had been somewhat of a failure, really, uh, but Ball was hooked. He was sold on what the NASL were trying to do in North America and he wanted to be part of it again. So at the end of the 78 NASL season, he returned to Southampton, but following the 78-79 First Division season, Allen went back to the Fury. He didn't last the full season in Philadelphia, though, uh, as the, the Vancouver Whitecaps came calling midway through uh, that 1979 season and, and Ball then moved to Canada with them. The Fury were, were somewhat of a, a microcosm, really, of the problems in the NASL. Despite being newly formed in, in 1978, they were sort of an example of the, the fragility of the franchises that were being built in America. And by the end of, of 1980, they, they had folded, so just after three seasons. When he left the Fury in 79, though, there were much greater things ahead for Ball in North America. This Vancouver Whitecaps team was OK. It used to win its conference pretty regularly. It got to the playoffs, but it was just missing out on that extra play that could take them to the next level. They lost to Portland the season before. They had a decent coach in Tony Wasers, who was understanding of English football and was actually very different to a lot of how the North American sides played 
Um, this was a manager that came in that adopted a completely different philosophy compared to the likes of Rinas Michels that we saw at the LA Aztecs. He wasn't going for big names. He was going for players like Carl Valentine from Oldham Athletic and Ray Lewington, combined with Canadian players as well that were bringing a, a team a different playing style that was different and teams didn't know how to come up against them. And ball joined halfway through the season where the results have been going okay, but they needed someone to take them to that extra level. And that's exactly what Ball did. You know, he comes in, he gets an assist on his first game and he scores a penalty to win it for them. And it was him that took them to that next level in terms of experience. And it was him that in that playoff uh, matches against the likes of the Aztecs, against the likes of the New York Cosmos that took them really to winning the playoffs. And I think people forget about his time at, in the US. I mean, he didn't go there precisely for the money. He, he partly did, but he also went there to get experience to also win something because it was a great experience for him and there was less pressure on him as well. He didn't have to be under so much criticism that he was under the UK. He could be the star and he could be okay with that because Americans wanted stars in their teams. They didn't look down on them. They were happy to see players playing well like ball and he fitted into the style perfectly that the North American Soccer League had of free-flowing attack in football because you were rewarded for every time you scored a goal uh, up to three, you got an extra point in the, in the conference. So he loved playing there and he was, ama- he was an amazing player for them too and it was him that um, played in that amazing playoff run. They beat the Dallas Storm, then they beat the LA Aztecs, which was managed by um, Rinus Michels, and they had Johan Cruyff in that side. And it was the complete opposite of philosophies. I mean, you had a side that was mainly built on English and Canadian players were playing a physical, hard style of football compared to total football. But the total football didn't come out on top that day. It was Bulls' English style of football managed by an English manager who had hardly any experience compared to Rinus Michels. But they won incredibly, and then they beat the Cosmos. They went against the whole philosophy that the NSL was built on of big stars and big money, and they defeated that. And then, obviously, they won the Soccer Bowl against uh, Philadelphia. That was amazing because people lined the streets. It got people into Canadian soccer and it built the fan base that when the Vancouver Whitecaps were accepted back into the MLS they already had that crowd because of the people that generation that experienced ball playing for the the Vancouver Whitecaps back in the North American Soccer League days and it was an incredible experience for him and it was great to see him lift a trophy and uh, be held a hero in a new city where he had no pressure on him. And then the gaffer swapping boots for flat cap and lending his weight to the world of football management. Alan Ball took his first foray into management with Blackpool, whom he joined as player manager in time for the 1980-81 season. He joined Blackpool from Southampton, where he had been playing regularly in the first division under Laurie McMenemy. Ball agreed to join Blackpool at the end of the 1979-80 season, but before he could take up his post at Bloomfield Road, he had an engagement to keep to play football in the summer at Vancouver Whitecaps. Upon his return to England and taking up the post full-time, his first two actions were to appoint Ted McDougall as his assistant and then cut the size of the squad from 34 to a more manageable 19. Alan Ball was always going to be a hands-on manager and so a lot of the coaching was taken by him and was based on drills he had learned at Everton, Arsenal and Southampton. Some of the Blackpool players, however, found these drills a little bit difficult to manage. The season started reasonably well, with opening victories over Swindon in the league and Walsall in the League Cup. But then a bad run of form hit, with only one win from eight matches. Worst news was to follow when McDougall suddenly quit due to family reasons, 
and so Ball approached Willie Morgan from Bolton to join as player coach. After a brief bounce of three wins in four games, a further bad run hit with only one victory in 18 matches following and the pressure was already on. Boardroom battles further destabilised the club and while Ball retained the support of the fans, some were of the view that Blackpool under Ball were trying to play too much football. In February 1981, Ball quit and was immediately approached by McMenemy to resume playing for Southampton. So it came to pass that just a few days after leaving Blackpool, Ball was back in the first division playing for Southampton versus Manchester United. Years later, he was to express regret that his first spell in management had not been a success. He stated that in retrospect he hadn't been ready for the opportunity and he would have been better off starting out as an assistant or a coach somewhere. However, the relative failure of his time in charge of Blackpool has done nothing to dilute the honour and esteem that he is still held in at the club to this day. After focusing on playing for a few more years after his Blackpool disaster, Ball retired in 1984 and looked to start his managerial career in earnest at Portsmouth. Pompey fans may have had some reservations about appointing an ex-Southampton star as their gaffer, but these were quickly cast aside by success. Having finished 16th in the second division the season before he was appointed, Portsmouth under Ball were immediately transformed into one of the division's top teams, as evidenced by successive fourth-place finishes in his first two seasons at the club. Those near misses with promotion were to be avenged in Ball's third season, 1986-87, as he led the Fratton Park side to second place in the league and, with it, promotion to the promised land of the top flight for the first time since 1959. The end of Ball's time at Pompey was tainted by financial troubles and clashes with chairman Jim Gregory. The club was relegated after just one season in the top flight and Ball was sacked the following season as he struggled to mount a promotion challenge. However, his near five-year spell had shown Ball to be a manager of some substance. They say hindsight is a wonderful thing, and I've had the opportunity to think about Alan Ball's time as manager of Stoke City back from uh, 1989 to 1991. Alan came to Stoke at a difficult time for the club, the back end of the 1980s was a, a, a bit grim. <laughs> we dropped out of the old first division and we weren't in the, the best of states. Uh, Mick Mills came in as player manager, uh, initially stabilising the club. And after a couple of years, I think things, it stagnated at the, the, at the club and Mick Mills had lost his way. But... Um, Summer of 1989, surprisingly, given that uh, the majority of Stoke's support were hoping that Mills would go, they gave him a new contract and a million pounds to spend on players. We didn't start the 89-90 the season particularly well and Mills brought in Alan Ball to help him out. A bit of coaching, assistant manager, as uh, Alan was out of work at the time. Inevitably, uh, Mills came under pressure and um, was eventually sacked after we lost 6-0 at, uh, at Swindon. And the supporters were extremely keen for Alan to be given the job, and he was. The supporters were, were behind Alan from, from the word go. Even though we continued to struggle 
I mean, Alan won his first game in charge, but uh, afterwards it didn't get much better. We ended up, we finished bottom and were relegated to the old third division, but the supporters remained behind Alan and believed that he could get them get them back first time of asking. Sadly, it didn't work out, and Alan, lost, uh, Alan left the club in, I'd say, unsavoury circumstances. There's a lot going on at Stoke City at the time that was probably beyond his control, and a lot going on that the supporters weren't aware of. And it was right that there was a parting of the ways. I think some people, including Alan's son, Jimmy, has said that Stoke at the time probably needed that relegation. And I think that's probably fair. And it enabled us to rebuild, and, and we did rebuild eventually. I mean, Alan Ball, he was a hero almost everywhere he went. And he was sadly not the hero at Stoke that we were looking for. And it's very sad because everybody was desperate for him to succeed, the supporters and the players. I mean, I've had the opportunity to speak to a couple of Stoke players from that period and they all could not speak higher of Alan Ball and they wanted to do well for him. But for whatever reason, it, it didn't work out. Maybe the players just weren't good enough. Alan Ball found himself back in Hampshire in 1994, this time as manager of Southampton. The Saints had been founding members of the new Premier League, but were doing their very best to get out of it and sat second bottom of the table when Ball was brought in to replace Ian Branfoot. Right away, Ball identified that the key to Saints' survival would be a mercurial forward by the name of Matthew Letissier, who had been dropped by Branfoot earlier in the season amid concerns over his work rate. In Ball's first training session with his new team, he famously gathered the squad together and pointed to Letissier. Whether you like it or not, he is the best player at the club by a million miles, said Ball to the assembled Saints players. His goals will keep us up. For him to do that, he can't run and tackle because he's useless at that. Get the ball to him. It worked. Four wins in his first five games was an almighty return for Ball, with Letizia scoring seven goals in that run, including a hat-trick in a 4-2 victory over Liverpool. Ball undoubtedly got the best out of Letizia who scored a total of 15 goals in 16 games under the new manager that season, a return that helped him finish as the third top scorer in the league and win Southampton's Player of the Season award. After a slump in March, Southampton entered April with it all to do if they wanted to stay up. Ten points in their last six games, including a thrilling 5-4 comeback win at Carrow Road, which featured another Letizia hat-trick, was enough to keep them in the division by the skin of their teeth. A 3-3 draw with West Ham on the final day of the season, keeping them out of the relegation zone by a mere point. The following season saw the Saints bolstered by the signing of Bruce Grobelar and the extension of Letizia's contract. After a slow start, a 2-1 win away to Tottenham, Letizia double, naturally, sparked an autumn run of 13 points from five games. A 12-game winless winter streak followed, leaving the Saints bottom of the league in late March and looking in real danger of relegation. However, a glut of springtime victories, including notable successes against Tottenham, Newcastle and Chelsea, saw the Saints rise up the table to the safety of an impressive 10th-placed finish. Letizia was once again integral, helping himself to 19 league goals. Ball clearly recognised the importance of his talisman, but he also knew the best way to use him. Alan Ball had as much belief in my ability as I did, Letizia once said. 
He just brought the best out of me. He built the team around me and I rewarded him with the best football of my life. Ball's time as Southampton manager was such an unequivocal success that it threatens even to eclipse his playing days at the Dell. Whilst his departure to Manchester City in the summer of 1995 was controversial, his combined legacy at Southampton as player and coach places him firmly in the pantheon of that club's all-time greats. important thing to remember about the Manchester City of the mid-1990s is that it were nothing at all like the Manchester City of today. This was not a club who were splashing the cash and not a team that were full of talents. This was a club that staggered from disaster to disaster, really. And when Alan Ball came into the club in July 1995, he was only replacing Brian Horton, who'd narrowly had avoided the disaster of his own the year before. Looking at the squad that he took over as well, there was no, no wonderful players there. Uwe Roslamata got 15 goals the year before. Nal Quinn was a good player, but this wasn't a team full of world beaters. That showed pretty quickly as well. They might have got a draw against Tottenham in the first game of the season, but after that came a run of eight straight defeats. And they might have got a draw against Leeds again by the end of October, but was followed by a smashing 6-0 at Liverpool. Things gone into November, City were rock bottom of the league. Things were looking pretty bleak. Then, in the first game of November against Bolton... Alan Ball's hometown club things began to look up Nicky Summerby got put through on the right he slotted home to secure a 1-0 win and suddenly Alan Ball, Manchester City they were rolling they got a point at Sheffield Wednesday next game began to start playing a little bit better as well Georgie Kincati was finding space now Quinn was beginning to dominate defenders Quinn got the winner himself against Wimbledon next game Kincati produced a beautiful goal against Aston Villa to seal that one Make sure they got three wins out of the four games they played in November. That was enough for the Manager of the Month award for Ball. It didn't stop there. They went to Leeds, beat Leeds at the beginning of December, and they pulled away from the relegation zone. Things really were looking up. Thanks City were beginning to look up the table instead of down it for the first time in a long time. But perhaps there were signs there. Those five games had gone undefeated had only produced five goals, so there were still some worrying signs. Worrying they may have been, but there was really no idea of quite what was to come. So between the start of the new year and the 8th of April, City's record was as follows. Played 15, won 3, drawn 6, lost 6, scored 19. So the manager of the month curse was in full effect here. It was the lack of goals that was really hampering the Sky Blues as they plummeted down the table. It all came down to the final game against Liverpool for him to save City against relegation. They had to better Southampton's result against Wimbledon to guarantee safety. However, it started awfully as within five minutes of the whistle, Liverpool were ahead. And things got worse aboard just before the break as Ian Rush doubled their advantage, which gave City an absolute mountain to climb in the second half. They must have sharpened their pickaxes and fixed their ropes because climb they did, with Uwe Rossler pulling one back in the 71st minute, with Kit Simmons equalising seven minutes later. Then somehow... Either for a fan or a member of staff mishearing the radio, word got to Ball that Southampton were losing, so a draw was now enough to secure safety. He then decided that it wasn't worth the risk of chasing that winning goal. So the message was relayed to the players, head to the corner, run the clock down, and whatever you do, do not concede. Niall Quinn had been subbed off early in the second half, so got changed and was hanging around in the tunnel, preparing to celebrate his side's miraculous escape. It was only at this point that he checked the scores, 
to see that in fact Southampton were holding Wimbledon to a 0-0 draw. The Saints had a much better goal difference to City, so a draw would not be enough. They needed to get out of the corner at once and frantically chase another goal. Despite all their best efforts and praying that the Wimbledon could somehow do them a huge favour, this third goal never came. Both games ended in a draw, meaning City were relegated on goal difference. One of, if not the cruelest way, to be sent down to a lower division. Nowadays, as every fan is able to monitor scores around the country, the scenes witnessed at Main Road back in May 96 will never be repeated. But unfortunately for Aaron Ball, even if he was still with us, this would unlikely bring him much comfort. In early 1998, Ball took on what would prove to be the final appointment of his managerial career when he became manager of Portsmouth for a second time. It was a decision based on loyalty and sentiment for Ball, who had all but given up on football management after a chastening experience at Man City. The situation he inherited was essentially a more serious version of the mess he had walked into at Southampton, with Pompey several points adrift at the bottom of the Division 1 table and looking nailed on for the drop to the third tier. However, a miraculous run in the second half of the season saw the Fratton Park side stay up, their status secured with a 3-1 win at Bradford City on the final day of the season. That season was perhaps most famous for a rousing speech given by Ball on his first day in the dugout, including the immortal rallying cry, This is Portsmouth. People went to war from this city. Words which still adorn the players' tunnel at Fratton Park today. Season 1998-99 saw Ball once again keep Portsmouth in the division, but a financial crisis at the club overshadowed events on the field. They were eventually saved from financial oblivion by new chairman Milan Mandaric, who dispensed with Ball's services in December 1999 after a poor run of form left them in the relegation zone. Ball's second spell in the Fratton Park dugout may have lacked the lofty successes of his first, but his passion and motivational skills meant that he was, for a time at least, the firefighter the club needed to help it survive in its newly straightened financial situation. When viewed through the lens of Portsmouth's subsequent history, that period begins to look like something of a sliding doors moment. Without Ball's timely intervention in defying gravity to keep the club in the second tier, the later successes of the Mandarit era may never have materialised. The final age is the retiree, the lean and slippered pantaloon taking root on the south coast. When the time came for Alan Ball to settle after his retirement from football, there was only ever going to be one place in contention. Ball chose to live out his days in Warsash, a small Hampshire coastal village that lies roughly equidistant between Portsmouth and Southampton. The south coast was Ball's home, somewhere he felt settled and peaceful. However, the story of how Ball came to be on the south coast in the first place is an interesting one which straddles both his playing and managerial careers. Ball's love affair with Hampshire didn't start until he was 31 years old. He signed for Southampton in 1976, having split his career up until that point between the northwest of England, with Blackpool and Everton, and its capital, with Arsenal. The transfer might very well have raised some eyebrows, as the World Cup winner was leaving Arsenal to join a team which languished in the second tier of English football. Perhaps Ball could see that, having just defeated Manchester United to win their first, and so far only, FA Cup, this was a team with some potential. It certainly looked like a step towards the winding down of an already distinguished career, and Southampton fans must have been wondering if they were signing a legend or a has-been. Ball himself acknowledged that it was a risk to turn down interest from top-flight sides, 
stating in his autobiography that, when I moved, I reckon Laurie McMenemy and myself were the only two people convinced I had done the right thing. But the move paid off in spectacular fashion. After a first season of gradual improvement, Ball's second season at the Dell saw him captain the Saints to promotion back to the First Division after a four-year absence. The following season, Southampton finished in a comfortable 14th place in the top flight, with Ball and Ever present. They also had a cup run to enjoy, getting all the way to the final of the League Cup before losing out 3-2 to Brian Clough's Nottingham Forest, a handy enough side who were champions of England and would win the first of two successive European Cups less than two months later. Far from being a slow slide into retirement, Ball's South Coast adventure had seen him play some excellent football and contribute to tangible success. After a short time as Blackpool player-manager, Ball returned to the Dell for a second spell as a player in March 1981. The Saints team that Ball joined was an altogether more glamorous proposition than the one he had left, with Kevin Keegan, 1978 and 1979 Ballon d'Or winner, leading an attractive attacking lineup. In season 81-82, Ball was instrumental as that side dared to dream of the league title, leading the league for much of the run-in before slipping to a 7th place finish, still enough to qualify for the following season's UEFA Cup. It was a stunning demonstration of Ball's prevailing talents, his ability to be a key player in one of the top flight's best sides as he hurtled towards his 37th birthday, 20 years after his debut at Blackpool, reflecting his incredible longevity. Keegan was effusive in his praise of his teammate, saying, I'd already been European Footballer of the Year twice, but he could teach me things that I never even thought about. Of course, Ball went on to spend some of the best times of his managerial career on the South Coast, flitting between Portsmouth and Southampton and leading those clubs through the entire spectrum of glory and heartbreak. When looked at in the round, Ball's contribution to football in Hampshire over the course of his career as a player and manager was colossal. He crossed the great Southampton-Portsmouth divide a remarkable three times, and there can be few individuals who have left such a mark on the modern history of both Southampton and Portsmouth. When the time came to retire, he had undoubtedly earned the right to a peaceful life in Warsash. Alan Ball meant so much to so many. As a player and manager, he achieved the rare distinction of being a significant figure for a number of different clubs, as fans of Blackpool, Everton, Arsenal, Southampton and Portsmouth, amongst others, will surely testify. His story may have started with that meteoric rise to World Cup glory, but that was just the first of seven ages of a colourful and successful career. You have been listening to the Football Pink podcast. For more stories like this one, please subscribe to the podcast and visit footballpink.net.